Christian Fellowship Church. Uh, I'm going to ask you to join me in prayer, not just for the time of getting ready for uh, partaking of God's Word, but also praying for our CFC kids volunteers uh, as they're continuing to uh, revive that program for our kids. And um, it, as you, many of you know, it can be a challenge to teach, to teach uh, children. So let's pray for them as well, and then we'll get into God's Word. I am thankful. Although I prepared with my island shirt for it to be really hot in here, I think it's tolerable. So I'm going to go for a long time today because it's, no, I'm just kidding. But let's, let's pray. Father, we are so grateful, Father, for the kids that you've entrusted to this church. Uh, and we pray this morning as they head down there with uh, some of our teachers, our volunteers. Father, we pray that you would fill those volunteers with your spirit, that they would sense uh, not just the importance and the significance of communicating your truth, your word, the gospel to uh, young hearts and minds, uh, but that they would also recognize ultimately that's your work, and even if they stumble here and there, uh, your word uh, is planted not on the backs of the skills of teachers, uh, but because it's handled faithfully. And so we ask that you would do that for them. We ask that you would do that for us that we would engage with God's Word, your Word. We pray that we would uh, leave here with this, a real sense of what this passage is calling us to do, what you were demanding of us from this passage, and how you were encouraging us to live in response to it. And so give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, so that we can respond appropriately by accepting, receiving, and bearing fruit from your word today, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So we're continuing through the book of Numbers. Would you turn with me there right away? Book of Numbers, fourth book in your Bible. So if you're new to the Bible, just go to the beginning, Genesis, and then continue over to the right. You'll find the book of Numbers, and we're going to be at the end of chapter 16 today. And... Well, now we got island music going on. Island shirt, island music, island colors, and uh, hopefully not too bad of an island heat. I'm going to just wait a couple seconds. All right. Normally I talk through it, but that, was, that sounded too competitive. All right. As we go through the book of Numbers, you're going to get hit again and again with a sort of repeated pattern. That can be frustrating to you. In fact, I've heard from the CFC Kids volunteers as they move through the Bible downstairs with the kids, the kids are like, oh, come on, Israel again, doing the same things. It is rebellion after rebellion, and it is almost unbelievable. I mean, it is it's difficult to believe some of the things that the Bible has, are the miracles, right, that God performs, but maybe harder to believe than that is exactly how hard-headed uh, God's people can be. You remember that there was another rebellion led by Korah and company, and God opened up the earth, swallowed them, the core group, the rabble-rousers, and then the ones that were on the sides of them were also killed. And then chapter 16, verse 41, here's what I think is more unbelievable than the miracles. But on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, 
you have killed the people of the Lord. I just want to pause there a second so we can grapple with how unbelievable that is. Did Moses go around like shanking, you know, killing people with a sword? No, he stood there. Do you remember how those people were killed? The earth opened up. God specifically said, I'm going to kill them in a way that isn't normal so nobody could confuse it with humans doing it. I did it. Not a week later, right? Not a few days later. The next day, not some of them, not a handful of them, all of them, the entire congregation left over, the ones that backed away from the tents that were going to get swallowed up, they were told to back away, earth opens up, and all the tents go down into the earth in front of them. They go to sleep that night, wake up in the morning, grab their coffee, a little bit of manna, and go, let's go complain against this idiot Moses. That's insane. Well, it is a kind of insanity. It's called blindness. They don't see it. They haven't reckoned with themselves yet. And so, yet again, we enter this pattern. And I think the reason why it is so repetitive is because they're so stiff-necked. And the reason why they're so stiff-necked is because this book is intended to explain to God's people throughout the ages that this is our tendency. We don't want to come to church Sunday after Sunday, hear the same things, and be like, ugh, and then not change. Right? But change is possible. Change is only possible if we grapple with what God is trying to tell us in the first place, which is we need that change. And we need to surrender to God's work in our lives. Well, without that surrender, the change isn't going to happen. And we'll live lives of just sort of coming up again and again and again against the same truths over and over again. When we hear what we need, we're kind of falling asleep. We're kind of checked out. When is it over? Because we're resisting the remedy. If you have a house inspector come to your house and the house inspector gives you really bad news and they're not like, yeah, you can fix a couple things and then the, your property value would go up. No, no, it's not that your property value is in danger. Your lives are in danger if you stay in this house one more night. Now, there's a couple things you could do. You could hem and haw, kick the inspector out, go find another inspector. Let me find another inspector to tell me what I want to hear or you can address the problem and save your life. And so that is the function of God's Word in our lives. It calls us out on things and we can resist it in a continual pattern of resistance and consequence, or we can surrender to it. And here we're going to see a breakthrough in the pattern. Not that they'll never rebel again, but at least it won't be the next day. What we see in the uh, chapter 16, 36 to 40, Eliezer, the son of Aaron, he's a priest, and he steps up. The censers that were left over out of the uh, blaze from the previous slaughter of the the rebels he scatters it but here's what i want to point out in verse 38 those censers shall be a sign to the people of israel and then he says in verse 40 it's a reminder to the people of israel so that no outsider will become like korah and his company what god is doing is building in reminders you remember the tassels now it's the censers we're going to see aaron's staff in a few moments god is building in reminders to remind the people what they need. You need me for life. And then pick it up in verse 41. On the next day, the congregation of the, of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, 
You have killed the people of the Lord. They don't want to grapple with God. They don't want to talk about God. They want to make it about Moses and Aaron. Verse 42, and when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. It's like some other episodes, God waits, and then Moses has to go get him and intervene. God just steps in right away in this form of a cloud. It's not just a little light cloud. It's this big, glorious, maybe even daunting cloud that covers, and the glory of the Lord appeared. Whatever that looked like, they knew what it was. Then verse 43, and Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, get away from the midst of the congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And I think they heard that because their responses, they fell on their faces. And you'll recognize that in this posture of repentance, they didn't get there until they grappled with the glory of God. And I hope you understand that we can have versions of God and versions of Jesus that we sort of fashion into the image that is likable to us. And that's not an image that makes you fall on your face. That's an image that makes you feel good about yourself. That's not God. And this is why we open Scripture and we don't go, I don't want to, numbers, it's too long, it's too repetitive, it's too hard. We want to see who God is. We don't want to fashion God into something that he isn't. And it's not until they are faced with his glory. My, one of my recommendations to you is to put aside the light, fluffy, devotional literature and pick up a book on theology about who God is. Something that will walk you through. We've heard Dave Mazin talk about uh, uh, Arthur Pink's book on the attributes of God. Pick that up. Pick up a systematic theology and just read the slim portion on who is God. As they walk you through scriptures, God is like this, God is like this. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come and just get to give me, give me my daily bread. Why don't you hang out on that first line for a little while? Before I ask the things of him, before I start praying things, let me just hang out there. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does that mean? Unpack that. This holy, glorious God that you get to commune with. We need to grapple with that. Otherwise, there's nothing to fall on our faces about. Brothers and sisters, if you have something in your life that's messing you up right now, it might be God's way of calling attention for you to draw to Him, not your version of Him, but the real, holy, glorious God that you need to come into your life for a breakthrough, and it starts with grappling with him and falling on your face. But our made-up versions, our sanitized version of God, that there's no reason to fall on your face for that. And if we're not falling on our faces before him in repentance, he can't break through and do the things in our lives he wants us to do. He certainly won't get us through the journey, and he certainly won't get us home because he has to get us home, meaning we have to walk with him, and we don't walk with him if we're serving something else or some made-up version of him. They see God in his glory. They see God in his weightiness. They see God in his sort of his fullness, his seriousness, and in his wrath. Get away from the midst of the congregation that I may consume them. And they don't dare go, consume us, how dare you? 
They go, whoa, we're about to be consumed. And they fall on their faces. That's how you convert. I taught a class recently at Trinity in the undergrad, so these are college students, and I had them write a paper. And in that paper, they had, a conclu- their, they had to include their conversion story, their testimony. And probably 90% of the students, even though they're in a Christian university, and even though I lectured on it, said nothing about repentance. I came to Christ, I was this age, I said a prayer, I was at a camp, I was at a church. And so then, in, you know, in my writing in the column, where's the repentance? Mark 1, Jesus came preaching the gospel. What did he preach? Repent and believe. You don't just come to faith. You fall on your face in faith. Have you had that moment? Or have you sort of adopted a Christianity culture? And you know the songs and you know the lyrics and you know what time service starts. That's what Christians do, but that's not what makes them Christian. You need a fall on your face moment. And maybe God's messing you up in your life right now to get you there. You need a bitter taste of the wilderness a little bit. You look around you, and maybe it scares you that your favorite worship leader, you've got three of his CDs, and he says he doesn't follow the Lord anymore. Your favorite apologist, you've got a bunch of his books, you watch all the YouTube, and he doesn't follow the Lord anymore. And you wonder, am I next? Good. Because publishing books, publishing music doesn't make you a Christian either. So how do you check yourself? How do you do that? How do you examine yourself? Have you come to grips with the weightiness and the glory of God where Job and his friends complain for all these long chapters in Hebrew poetry and finally at the end the answer isn't the answer that Job wants. The answer is when you see my cloud, you fall on your face, that's it. You need me, and I'm stooping to have a relationship with you. That's all you need to know. You don't need to know the answers behind every piece of suffering in your life. That's weighty, and that's difficult, but that's what they don't get, and that's why when we read through numbers, it's again and again and again, even the next day. That is crazy, but it's just as crazy for us to go through rituals and movements and pretend like we're on a journey when we're really not. So what happens is a plague breaks out. Verse 46, Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put fire on it. Remember we talked about the censer being that little bowl that they used to burn incense. That was a priestly function. Uh, Take take your censer and put fire on it from off the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. Why are you reading that so fast, Pastor? I'm trying to give you that pace. Hurry up and take the censer and get the thing and get out there because these people are going to die. Carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. But by the time he's done getting that sensor sensor ready, people are already ailing from some plague. We don't know what it is. But they're going to die. Verse 47, so Aaron took it as Moses said and ran, ran into the midst of the assembly. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. If I had one verse to highlight in all of Numbers so far, that's the verse. He stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped, so that the living wouldn't become the dead. Now those who died in the plague were over 14,700 
besides those who died in the affair of Korah. And Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting when the plague was stopped. When did Aaron return? When the plague was stopped. Why didn't Aaron return before then? Because he's the reason the plague stopped. Right? He didn't come back until the work was done. What was the work? Stopping that plague. Because he's Aaron? Not because he's Aaron. What's so good about Aaron? If we read through Aaron's story, a lot of failures. He's the one that led the golden calf worship. He was with Miriam, you know, when they were uh, rebelling against Moses. It's not because of his character. It's not because of who he is. It's because of his role as priest. The priests jump in to rescue. They're the intermediaries that fix that gap. They stand between the dead and the living so that the living don't become dead, right? That's the function of the priest. And so God provides a way. He doesn't want you dead. He shows in his glory that we should be dead, and they fall on their faces in a posture of death, but he doesn't want them dead. He sends the priest in for them to not be dead. What is not dead? Life. God is a source of life. He's about life. He wants to impart life. But there's an avenue toward it, and that avenue is repentance. Then we've got this episode with the staff budding. We'll read chapter 17, and then I'm just going to summarize, point out some things from the next two chapters. We won't be long in those chapters. But briefly in chapter 17, you've got this weird episode of Aaron's rod budding some almonds. It would be kind of weird. What's happening here? Let's check it out. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, it's God's way of fixing this death problem. Speak to the people of Israel and get from them staffs, each from, one for each father's house. From all their chiefs, according to their father's houses, 12 staffs. Remember, 12 tribes. So we got 12 staffs, 12 rods, with each man's name on his staff. So each member of the uh, chief of the tribe wrote on the staff the name. Of course, Aaron writes his name on the staff of Levi. For there shall be one staff for the head of each father's house. Then you'll deposit them in the tent of meeting before the testimony where I meet with you. And the staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout. So here we go again. God demonstrating who's the person that he's going to choose. But here it's to be the priest, to be the intermediary. Thus I will make to cease from me the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against you. How will the grumbling stop? How will the pattern stop? How will the rebellion cease? When they recognize who the priest is, that's when. So verse 6, Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and all their chief gave them the staffs, one for each chief, according to their father's houses, 12 staffs. And the staff of Aaron was among their staffs, of course. Verse 7, and Moses deposited the staffs before the Lord in the tent of the testimony. So what happens? On the next day, Moses went into the tent of the testimony. Behold, the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms and it bore ripe almonds. Then Moses brought out all the staffs from before the Lord to all the people of Israel and they looked and each man took his staff. And the Lord said to Moses, put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign so you can look at it again and again and recognize you have a priest. that You may make an end of their grumblings against me lest they die. Again, God is wanting to give them life. He doesn't want them to die. And the people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish. We are undone. We are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to perish? 
So recognize that when they see God's glory, they fall on their faces, but it's not until they recognize they are unable to mediate their own relationship with God. That's when they're in true desperation. I'm going to die because I can't walk with God. And then God's communicating, I know, your staffs don't bud, but there is one that I've blessed in a certain way that's going to be the stand-between so you can have life. And that's Aaron. Stop questioning it. Stop trying to create some other lane, some other path. Stop trying to go to somebody else. It's Aaron. And as Aaron does this work, he's going to make sure you stay pure. He's going to make sure you stay covered. He's going to make sure you stay atoned so that you can have life and I can get you to the land, so I can get you all the way there. And then you look at 18 and 19, you're like, wow, don't we have a lot of this in Leviticus? Uh, Yeah, it's very similar to what we've seen in Leviticus, and we're not going to walk through the verses verse by verse uh, here. But I want to point out a couple of things and then draw it home with some application for us. They're at a point where they're recognizing they should die. They're all going to perish if they have to meet God's holiness on their own. That's 17.13. Then chapters 18 and 19 explain why it was important that Aaron's staff budded. This is God's man. And so when God's man does the work of the priest, it's going to be effective and you can bank on it. And so 18 and 19 lay out these uh, laws it's beginning with the duties of the priest. And just look at verse 1 for an example. You and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear iniquity connected with the sanctuary. And he says that again, doesn't he? And you and your sons with you shall bear iniquity connected with your priesthood. Here we are an iniquitous people, a people that can't have life. We deserve to die because we don't match God's holiness. But we have a stand between that's going to bear those iniquities so we don't have to bear them. And if we don't have to bear them, we have life. That's what God is communicating. Church, that's not a New Testament truth. That's an Old Testament truth. And when people tell you the, New Test- the Old Testament God is mean and grumpy, and then the New Testament God is like, oh, I'll fix it. That- this is the New Testament message. You deserve to die, but I'm making a way for life. Well, how do I do that? I make one person the way to life. And that's the stand between that we need The function of the priesthood is to bear iniquity with relation to this holy place that they're surrounding so that they can have life. These priests keep guard. We see that in verse 2. We see that in verse 4, this guard duty. We see that in verse 5, their guard duty with relation to the wrath of God. We see it in verse 7, guard duty so that there's not death. So you see this repeated pattern. They stand guard. They're the stand-betweens, the go-betweens, so that you can live. Not so that you'll die, so that you'll live. But if you ignore the priest, you don't really need the priest, or you are your own priest, there's death. So God makes it clear. He uses reminders, the tassels, the uh, censers that were burning, and then now the staff that bore these ripe almonds miraculously overnight reminding the people, I have set something up so that you won't die. Don't make up your own stuff. Do it this way. Put your confidence and trust in this priesthood so that you and I can walk together 
through this wilderness journey, I can provide life for you and get you through to the end, to the promised land, this land of promise. And then when you read chapter 19, he goes into this purification stuff. He talks about your rubric at the top. Your Bible might have a heading that says laws for purification. But this is another bloody chapter. You see in verse 5, it's the skin, the flesh, the blood. It's all burned from this animal that's slaughtered in verse 3. And that is how the priest provides cleansing for the people. Verse 11 makes it specifically about touching a dead body. You can't touch a dead body. If you touch a dead body, you're unclean. If you even walk into a tent, whoa, that guy's dead. You're unclean, right? If you're around a dead body, if you touch a grave, if you touch death, you're unclean. Why? Because God is life and death can't be around him. And he doesn't want you to die. So when you're even around death, he's telling them, not you today. This is a symbol. He's telling the Israelites, if you're around death, touch death, near death, you're at a funeral, you walk into a tent, somebody's dead, you're now unclean, but there's a way to get clean. In other words, there's a way to get death off of you, like the cooties of death, to get it off of you, because I'm life. And so it seems strict, and it seems like all of these rules, and actually it's gracious because there's ways to do it besides just killing animals, which would have been an expensive thing for them but it's to fix their uncleanness. That's repeated over and over and over again. And then if you just check out the last paragraph, here's how seriously they had to take it. If the man who is unclean, this is the last uh, verses 20 and following of chapter 19, if the man who is unclean does not cleanse himself, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly since he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. And it shall be a statute forever for them. The one who sprinkles the water for impurity shall wash his clothes, and the one who touches the water for impurity shall be unclean until evening. And whatever the unclean, per- the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and anyone who touches it shall be unclean until evening. So it's this sort of contagiousness of death that the congregation has to be aware of. But all of this chapter provides the way out, and the way out is the priesthood. Now, we know, those of us who've been around the church and the Bible for a little while, that ultimately those priests pointed to uh, Jesus Christ, who steps in as the, as the perfect priest. You read through the book of uh, Hebrews, and he's convincing his audience, you don't need the priesthood anymore, the old way it was, not because it was insignificant, but because it was a picture of the real deal. You now have the real deal, Jesus Christ, one priest, and he doesn't die and have to pass it on to his son because he lives forever. And he doesn't have to enter the sanctuary over and over and over again because it's a one-time, effective stand-between. Now, we sin over and over. Hopefully not just the same sins. Hopefully we grow and mature. But in this wilderness journey, we sin over and over. But we, Jesus doesn't have to come and be born and die over and over. It's a one-time sacrifice, and it's effective. But I also want to remind you, that Jesus made it clear to his disciples that they need to go out into the world as priests. God called the people of Israel a holy nation and a royal priesthood. What does that mean? Well, it means that they're not supposed to just take God's blessings and keep it to themselves and keep it private in the world. As a nation, Israel was supposed to take God's blessing and give it to the other nations. 
So their priesthoods, because Israel was supposed to be a stand between, between God and all these other nations that were going to get death. They didn't do that real well. Jesus came to be the perfect priest, show what the priesthood is really about, and then he made disciples, and he said, I'm going to ascend so you get the Holy Spirit. Y'all are the temple now. God doesn't dwell in a tent on a mountain. He dwells in his people. And so that it is a holy people now, not an ethnic nation, but made up of many ethnicities that go out into all the world with light, spreading it into darkness. And so we are priests. When we talk about the priesthood of all believers, it doesn't mean we don't need to come to church, we don't need a pastor. It means that we all have this access to God, firstly. Secondly, we all are supposed to use this access to God to bring others into access with God. That was always the function of the priest, to be the stand between. Now, Jesus ascended and commissioned that role to the church. So some of the things that we can take away from this passage is to think about our roles in the lives of others who we know aren't going to make it. And we can't just lean on the hope that one day they'll stumble into CFC or some other hopefully gospel-preaching church and get saved. God has put a priest in their lives. And for those of you that I'm talking to, you're a Christian, that's you. You are light. You are salt, right? You don't take a candle and hide it under a bushel. You show it. A city on a hill is not supposed to be hidden. It's on a hill to not be hidden. Jesus is explaining that we're supposed to be out there vocally expressing our priesthood and our stand between. But here's the pressure, and here's why this passage is important. The pressure will be to soften the message, to make it likable, to get them to go, oh, okay, I get it. I thought Christians were jerks, but wow, the way you present it, that's really nice. When you think about presenting the gospel to someone, when you think about functioning as a priest in someone else's life, you've got to be clear on the message. God is holy, weighty, perfect, and we cannot stand before him. Not you cannot stand before him. None of us is able to stand before God. Like, what's up? We don't go up to that glory cloud and give God a fist bump. Right? We're not down with God. He will consume us because we are rebels. Our problem is we make light of the ways in which we rebel. We compare ourselves with the worst in our community. I'm not that. Makes me feel pretty good. That's why you cannot reckon with your sin by comparing yourself to other people. You can only reckon with your sin by comparing yourself to God problem there is we don't know who God is. We have a very vague sense from creation and our consciences of a God that's above things. He's powerful. He's glorious. But what really does that mean? And so you read through the Bible and you're like, wow, there's a lot of laws. And you're tempted to skip to the New Testament as if there's no laws in the New Testament. There's a lot. Those laws are God explaining to you, I don't like murder. When you steal from one another, that's definitely not me. God is explaining to you 
who he is. And so we open scripture and go, I don't want to adjust these things. I want to see God for who he is and grapple with the actual cloud of glory that's there and not make up my own. And we need to do that for the people to whom we communicate the gospel. If we soften the edges, if we only communicate some things, we don't communicate everything. If we talk about the advantages of being a Christian, how God cleaned up your life, how God is able to help you kick habits. Hey, you don't need God to kick a habit. People do it all the time. You can't promise them healing. I had cancer. I came to God. The church prayed. I was healed. Great. Awesome for you. Are you going to extend that as a promise to somebody else? That wouldn't be biblical. We need to be clear about what we communicate because they can't get life until they reckon with the fact that they can't be a priest among themselves and they don't even think they need a priest if they don't get to the fall in the face phase. Do you see the phases here? God shows up in his glory, they fall on their face. Then God says, priesthood is necessary, but not just any priesthood. You can't be your own priest. And that's when they go, man, I'm dead. I'm undone. And then they go, right, talk to Aaron. And so what we do as Christians now is we get as clear as we can on the gospel. We preach it like Jesus preached it. Repent and believe. Not just skip to the believe part. Right? Apologetics is not about getting someone to believe a God exists. It's not even about getting someone to believe that the Christian God exists. It's about getting them to repentance in light of the fact that this God exists. And so we don't want people to be like the homeowner that wants to just shush the inspector for pointing out things that are going to be costly. Well, it is costly. And just like that homeowner, it might make you cry. But on the other side of it is life. And let's say you lose some friends. Let's say some of those conversations go sideways. But one time, somebody converts, they repent, they come to Christ, and then they thank you for telling them the truth. Because if you didn't, they'd still be stuck in their own cycle of self-mediating with God or ignoring God altogether. We need to go out there as priests that get as tough and clear as this passage. We will all die in the desert if we don't get a stand between. And we don't get a stand between by making one up. There is one. That is the Holy Son of God, Jesus Christ himself, the perfect high priest. We need him as our go-between. And that go-between uses us now to take the priest message out. I want you to start thinking about people in your lives. We've been gleaning from the book of Numbers and chewing on it and eating it and enjoying it. Use those calories to get out there. And start communicating with people in your life. You may not get it right. You may not get it perfectly. But I sincerely believe you can meet somebody for coffee and walk them through the gospel of Jesus Christ from Numbers. Or wherever you want to do it from. But explain to them who God is and then who they are in light of who God is. And get them to the point where they can grapple with that gap. Here's God. That's who he is. Here's me. Wow, that's who I am. How do I close that gap? Now you're ready to present Jesus Christ to them.
If you walk up to somebody and say, hey, Jesus, good news, Jesus died for you. What do you do that for? Why is that good news? Right? It's only good news if they're convinced, wow, I should die. Hey, good news, Jesus bore that iniquity. Jesus bore that death. He blocked that wrath on the cross. Now that's good news. But if I don't believe that first part, Jesus is just another man, a prophet, a teacher. People follow him. I don't get it. Maybe he existed, whatever. It's not important whether he existed. I don't have a problem. We've got to get to the problem first, then the solution. Diagnose the illness, then the antidote. Figure out what's wrong with the house, and then bring in the person with the fix, and that is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the upfront nature of your word. We're thankful that it is clear about what we really need so that we can have life, what we really need so we can make it. And Father, many of us are in here right now, we just feel like what we need right now is just a breakthrough at our job or a breakthrough in our marriage or a breakthrough with one of our kids or a breakthrough with something else. And many of those things could be true but they pale in comparison to the ultimate breakthrough that we need with you to where we can handle whatever ups and downs life gives us if we've got this ultimate solution of Jesus Christ. What a peace, a peace of mind, a peace of heart you offer in assurance. We don't have to wake up in the middle of the night in cold sweats wondering if we still are on the other side of this gap. Christ's priesthood is effective and sure and final. And if we cling to it by faith, we know you will get us home. Well, Father, we pray that we would take that message out, outside of these doors, outside of our homes, uh, and to people's lives, Lord. We need your blessing for that. As we close in this song of worship, would you allow our hearts and our minds to rise to that occasion, to be the kind of people Israel was always supposed to be, a light to the nations, a priesthood to the nations, so that others can come in and enjoy this worship. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love. Lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in he stands, no tongue can bid me Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there, bidding it to my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted. Justice satisfied.
thankful for God's pardon. We recognize we go not only with His pardon, but with His commission to the world. And as He gives us His blessing on that mission, He says in number six, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Go in the Lord's peace this morning. God bless you.
Thank mm-hmm. you. 